the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Code shutters. The following program is sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy explains God's original intent for the temple in Jerusalem. You and I have got to appreciate afresh the significance of the temple within the life of the nation. This is where the Holy of Holies was housed. This is where God was meant to meet His people. This is where His concentrated glory was to be found amidst the nations. On Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy continues our series titled Essential Jesus. We're exploring one of the most shocking moments of Jesus' ministry when he turns over tables in the temple and drives people out. What led Jesus to such a radical action? And what does it mean for us today now that God calls every believer to be his temple? What tables might Jesus turn over in our lives today? To help us answer those questions, here now is Philip DeCourcy. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we're here in a series on Mark's gospel, The Essential Jesus, is what we have called the series. We've been working our way from chapter 1, and we're at an incident now in the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, and this is the cleansing of the temple. There were two occasions which Jesus cleansed the temple, and this is the second incident recorded by Mark and Matthew and Luke, and here we have it recorded in Mark 11, verse 12 through to 26. I want to call the sermon Turning the Tables, because that's what Jesus does, both literally and metaphorically. And in the passage before us, we're going to see the Lord Jesus encounter the religious establishment of his day. And he's going to set about draining the swamp that was Jerusalem. That's what we have here in the cleansing of the temple. As he looks upon the temple, his father's house, he is struck by the smugness, the corruption, the emptiness, and the inversion that was taking place in the religious life of the nation. Worship was about impressing men rather than pleasing God. Worship was a matter of ritual that was without reality, outward religious conformity that masked a heart that was far from God. In fact, if you looked at the religious leaders of the day, you would realize that they were leading people away from God rather than to God. They had man-made traditions that were trumping the authority of God's Word. It was low tide, spiritually speaking. It was so bad that Jesus says of the temple that it had become a den of thieves. It was a swamp that needed draining. And Jesus sets about doing that. So let's look at this very passage. This is verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem, 
Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow them to carry wares through the temple. Then he said, teaching them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? That's a reference from Isaiah 56. But you have made it into a den of thieves. That's a reference from Jeremiah 7. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and they sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. He's made the two-mile journey from Bethany. He now enters the court of the Gentiles, this large court that ringed the inner court of the temple. You and I have got to appreciate afresh the significance of the temple within the life of the nation. This is where the Holy of Holies was housed. This is where God was meant to meet his people. This is where his consecrated glory was to be found amidst the nations. What Vatican City is to Rome, what the Capitol building is to Washington, what Westminster Abbey is to London, what the Eiffel Tower is to Paris, the temple was to the Jewish people and more. Two things that I want to consider with you, and I think there'll be an application in it for all of us. Number one is the passion. I mean, there's passion here. He began to drive them out. There was no pretty pleas. Jesus violently throws the tables over because the poor were being exploited and the Gentiles were being excluded and the whole thing was a religious facade and God was being robbed of his glory and people being robbed of his grace. And folks, the fact is, Jesus standing there couldn't stand it. He starts to drive them out. So that's the passion Number two, the protest. Upon his arrival, Jesus crashes the large outer court of the Gentiles. As I've said, this encircles the inner court in which you have the Holy of Holies, and you have that area reserved for Jews alone and then for the priesthood. Jesus is enraged, and he begins to protest. Another word could be purge, and he acts on what he sees and what he hears, and he drives out those who buy and sell in the temple. And then he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? You've turned it into a den of thieves. This was to be a house of prayer. No, it was a house of profit. If there was any praying going on, it was all leaves. It was religious conformity without heart. That's why John Bunyan says, Better your heart be without words than your words be without heart when you're praying. And then finally, there was the exclusion of the Gentiles. Did you notice what Jesus said? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Listen to these words by David Garland, who's got an excellent commentary on Mark in the NIV application series. You see, that's a quote from Isaiah 56, verse 7. But if you go back up to Isaiah 56 and verse 3, the foreigner is addressed. The foreigner who thinks he's got no place in the house of God. And God says, you come to my house and your name will be there forever. You see, Israel was a missionary nation. Of course, God had set his love upon Israel in a special way. But he had called that nation to be evangelistic to the other nations. The seed of Abraham would bless all the nations. And you see in Zechariah on a future day, this picture of the nations coming up to a rebuilt temple under the rule of Jesus Christ and worshiping. That's the way it should have been. In fact, in Acts 8, you've got the Ethiopian eunuch returning to Ethiopia after worshiping in Jerusalem. 
But for the most part, Gentiles were excluded. That outer court would ought to have been a place bustling with Persians and Assyrians and those who had come from other nations. They were excluded. And it was now a den of thieves. And this guy catches it. The passage cited from Isaiah 56 verse 7 my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, means that God did not plan for the temple to become a national shrine for Israel. I love that phrase. It was not meant to be a national shrine, but it had become that. There was no room for Gentiles. This is no longer a house of prayer for all nations. It's an offense to God. And Jesus was angry. The church is his temple. Metaphorically speaking, there used to be a court of the Gentiles among us room for people to come from all nations and backgrounds and encounter the gospel, be wonderfully saved and discipled. We want to be a mosaic of all kinds of people because that best reflects the gospel. I like what President Lyndon B. Johnson reportedly inscribed on a doormat in his ranch home in Texas. On the doormat, he had these words, the whole world is welcome here. That's good, isn't it? That'd be a good doormat outside the sanctuary here. The whole world is welcome here. We're going to guard ourselves against James 2 and playing favorites with people who come here. Well, there are kind of people. There's only two kinds of people, saved and lost. And we're saved, thank God. Let's have a heart for the lost. Okay, we've got to move on to the last thought. Christ instruction. Tuesday morning now, that's where we are in verse 20. Did you notice now in the morning? Now in the morning. Verse 12 we have the next day. That's Monday. Now in the morning. That's the day after Monday. That's Tuesday. And as they passed, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he asks. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. All right, let's try and collapse this and compress this. Jesus is retracing his steps the next day back to Jerusalem. And Peter notices, because remember they heard him say to that tree, you're not going to bear any more fruit. They happen to come by and there's that fig tree and it's withered now, right down to the root. And this gives Jesus an opportunity to teach. We go from the illustration, we go from the indignation, we go to the instruction. And he instructs them on the true nature of prayer. I mean, after all, he's been talking about the temple being a house of prayer for all nations. Dispensationally speaking, I think Jesus in his own mind, the disciples will get this a little later on. The church will become that temple. The physical temple will be destroyed. It's my belief it will be rebuilt in a future day when Israel is regathered into the land under God's providence and plan. But right now, the temple has been destroyed. Blindness in part has taken hold of Israel. God's doing a work in the church among the world. And we're now the house of prayer. And so Jesus is going to teach those who will find the church about prayer and the fact that the church must be marked by prayer. And prayer will be marked by what? Faith and forgiveness. And I think in mentioning faith, the Lord Jesus is saying, look, 
I want you to bear this in mind. I want you to be aware of this fact that abandoning faith in the temple should not lead to abandoning faith in God. So here's two elements to true prayer, expectant faith and exuberant forgiveness. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the first thought. I think we've kind of dealt with this on several occasions in this book. But in verses 20 through to 24, the Lord Jesus reminds his disciples to keep their faith in God and to pray to him expecting an answer because God keeps his promises God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Back in Mark 10, 27, we're reminded that our God is able to do the impossible. Now, just recently, I was talking to one of my daughters who was asking me about faith. And to help her grasp what faith was, I gave her a great quote by Hudson Taylor, who said that faith is reckoning on God's faithfulness. I think that's a great quote. Faith is a reckoning or counting or banking on God's faithfulness. That's what faith is. Faith is you resting, trusting, looking at life, anticipating tomorrow on the basis that God will be faithful to his promise, faithful to his character, faithful to his church. And that brings about expectancy. Because John says, if we believe the word of man, how much will we believe the word of God? First John 5, if someone says to you tomorrow, hey, I'll meet you for lunch at Panera on Santa Ana Canyon Road. For the most part, you're going to be there. Now, they may not turn up or circumstances may prohibit them. But you know what? If your friend or someone you know you can basically trust says, I'll meet you somewhere, you're going to meet them because you believe their testimony. And John says, if we believe the witness of man, how much more will we believe the witness of God? You've got thousands of years to look up God's resume. God's faithful to his covenant. God's faithful to his promise. So what is faith? It's reckoning on God's faithfulness. And you need to reckon on it. And you can count on it. When you face mountains, that's a symbol for obstacles. When things get in the way of your progress in faith or the progression of God's plan in your life, then go to God. And if it's within his will for his glory, you can count on his faithfulness. So prayer ought to be marked by expectant faith. Finally, as we close, exuberant forgiveness. True prayer requires not only faith, verses 22 to 24, it requires forgiveness, verses 25 to 26. When you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespass. There's a double scoop of advice. You want God to answer your prayer, then reckon on his faithfulness. Because if we don't believe, according to James 1, 6 to 8, we can't expect to receive. But with that comes forgiveness. And it's pretty simple. We'll make it simple. I think you can grasp this with me. To be right with your heavenly Father on the vertical axis requires that you be right with your brother and sister on the horizontal axis. I mean, if he's our father, implication is we're his children, but not just us. Other Christians are part of the family, so there's a family. Now, the point is, you're going to go to your father in the context of the family and ask him to love you when you hate someone else in the family. And you're going to go to your father and ask him for forgiveness when you don't like and haven't forgiven someone else in the family. It just doesn't work that way. And I like images, so here's the image. You can't look God in the face with your back bitterly turned to another brother or sister and expect God to be listening to you because he knows all about it. He knows all about the family and the bitterness and the rancor and the unforgiveness, and the unkind words. And you know what? I'm not going to do this until she does that. 
Well, you want to implode your prayer life? Go ahead. That's exactly where it'll happen. Because without faith and without forgiveness, we have no effective prayer life. So that's where you and I need to challenge ourselves. As you go to prayer, ask yourself about others. Because you see, prayer is about others. Look at the model prayer later on and notice that it's all corporate and plural. Our Father. Didn't say my Father. Jesus didn't say, hey, here's the way you ought to pray, my Father. Here's how you ought to pray, our Father. Because prayer is a family affair. Yes, you can pray about your own things, but you know what? You need to pray about your brothers and sisters. You're part of a family. And that's why true prayer is always about praying with and for God's people. And therefore, relationships are everything when it comes to prayer. If prayer is meant to be you and I praying with and for God's family, then when we're out of sync with someone in the family, that's going to affect our prayer. That's why Warren Wearsby, to steal a thought from him, said that, you know what? We may pray in private, but we never pray alone. And we never should pray alone. Like that thought. We pray in private, but we should never pray alone. Because you see, we're part of the family of God and we pray to our Father. And so if you and I are praying about our own concerns, as we think about our concerns, we're immediately going to go, you know what? I need to pray about that brother's concern or that sister's need. But then you won't be able to do that if you're out of sync with that brother or sister. So relationships are paramount. You can't pray to your father while you're bitter towards your brother or sister. Jesus says that. Don't ask God for forgiveness and be unforgiving. Because forgiven people ought to be forgiving people. Let me finish with this story as a challenge. I was just reading about this week, Corrie Ten Boom, reading a book at the moment, 50 Great Christian Women. She's in it, although this story doesn't come out of the book I'm reading. But in 1944, she found herself in a concentration camp in occupied Holland. The Gestapo had come and found her and her family hiding Jews, and she had been betrayed by a neighbor, and her and her sister Betsy found themselves in a concentration camp. And while they were there, a fellow prisoner gave them the name of the informant, the man who betrayed their family to the Gestapo. And his name was Jan Vogel. And for the hours that followed and some days that came after that, Corrie ten Boom wrestled with the thought of that man. And she became bitter. She became unforgiving. Hatred inflamed her heart. In fact, she envisioned standing in front of him and killing him for what he had done to her family. Her father had been separated from the girls. It's interesting, that night, Betsy and her would gather with some of the women in the room they were in. They had smuggled the Bible in, so every night under kind of the shadow of the darkness, they would read a passage of Scripture and pray together. And that night, it was Corrie Ten Boom's turn to pray and to read. And she says to her sister, you lead the prayers tonight. I have a headache. She had more than a headache. She had a heartache. A root of bitterness had taken hold of her life. She couldn't sleep. It affected her physically so much so that she became sick in body. But she knew and others began to see it wasn't just an illness of the body. It was a sickness of the heart. Unforgiveness. Hatred had gripped her. But what struck her was her sister Betsy's calm and forgiving demeanor. And she went to her sister Betsy and she said, you know, how can you forgive this man? I hate him. Look what he's done to dad. Look what he's done to us. Look what he's done to others. 
Batsy tried to share, you know what, it's hard for me to be unforgiving when I've enjoyed so much forgiveness, and I don't know what situation led him to do that. I, I can't imagine the suffering he's going through given the choices he's made. And it kind of melted her sister's heart. Listen to these words as we close. For a long time after that, Corey lay awake in the shadowy barracks. As she contemplated her sister's Christ-like perspective, she came to realize that before God, she was just as guilty as John Vogel. They were both guilty of murder. He had betrayed people to death. She had murdered him with her heart and with her tongue. Lord Jesus, she finally prayed that night, I forgive John Vogel, and I pray that you will forgive me. I have done him great damage. Bless him now and his family. Then, for the first time since this betrayer had a name, she drifted off into a deep, dreamless sleep. Because, you see, things were right on the horizontal, and things were right on the vertical. And it's at that intersection you'll find peace and health of mind and strength of heart and the will to live out the gospel. And the same can happen in your life. If you and I go about unforgiving, we're going to give people the wrong impression because only those who forgive can truly represent the one who forgives. And in our bitterness and in our unforgiveness and in our unkindness toward each other, we send out the wrong message. We mix the message. We give people the wrong impression. Let's not do that for their sake and for our sake. Lord, thank you for our time together. Lord, if we update our temple theology, we marvel at the fact that today we're the temple where God dwells. The church is the temple. The body of the believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we have looked at this historic event when Jesus cleansed the temple, confronted those in the temple, Lord, while it has historic significance for the nation of Israel, it has a secondary application to us. Lord, our temple needs cleansing. There needs to be a clean sweep of things in our lives that are unbecoming. There's a prayerlessness about us. We should be a house of prayer, but there's a prayerlessness about us. We should be a place that touches the nations, and yet there can be an exclusivity to us. There can be an inbred taking care of ourselves that leaves us insensitive to the world. There can be a lack of faith. There can be an unforgiveness about us, all becoming of the temple of God. So, Lord, do that cleansing work in each of our lives through the Word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're listening to Philip DeCourcy on Know the Truth and today's message titled, Turning the Tables. The entire Essential Jesus series in the Gospel of Mark is available on our website for streaming or downloading. Go to ktt.org. And if you're new to Know the Truth, or if you've never reached out before, Philip wants to send you his message called, Finding the Heart to Go On. Be encouraged as Philip reminds you of God's unfailing mercies. Ask for the free CD message when you call 888-644-8811. There's no cost or obligation. And if you're going through a particular tough season, it would be our privilege to pray for you. Reach out today. At Know the Truth, we count all our listeners as partners. It's not a one-way relationship, that's for sure. As we provide Philip DeCourcy's bold and biblical teaching, listeners like you support Know the Truth in prayer and with financial gifts. So if you have been equipped and encouraged by this nonprofit ministry, sign up to become one of our Truth Ambassadors. 
These monthly partners provide the financial bedrock for this ministry. Become a Truth Ambassador today when you call 888-644-8811 or go to ktt.org. And whether you become a Truth Ambassador or give a generous one-time gift, Philip has a special resource for you. It's from one of his favorite authors, Sinclair Ferguson, and it's titled Child in the Manger. This book will remind you that Jesus stands at the center of history, calling us to embrace Him as Creator, Savior, and Lord. Discover the deeper meaning and significance of Christmas when you read Child in the Manger. Ask for it today when you give. Again, call us at 888-644-8811 or go to ktt.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to come back tomorrow as we wrap up the week with more teaching from the Gospel of Mark. That's Friday on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. around my age, one of these days you'll have to begin taking required minimum distributions from your IRA. Otherwise, the IRS is going to penalize you. If you're forced to take money out, what are you going to do with that money? How will you continue to grow it for yourself and your family? What kind of legacy will you create with it? I've been an investor most of my life, and I started Tradeway to share skill sets with brothers and sisters in Christ around the country. I want you to come check out our Step 1 Start Your Journey two-day event and have a blast learning fun, realistic, and powerful information about investing tactics that have the potential to help you get the most out of what you've spent your lifetime earning. Coming to the Renaissance Arlington, November 10th and 11th. Only $99.95 for your entire household, plus a free ticket for a friend and a full money-back guarantee. To register, call 877-907-TRADE. That's 877-907-8723. Or go to Tradeway.com. That's Tradeway.com. If you're over 50... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.